booklet. Uh, I don't have a booklet, but it looks like this sort of kind of. But after the it is very good part is where we're going to be getting to the the made in the image, right? Sorry, no, excuse me. The image of God in which man created and included totality of being is living. Image of God, Imago Dei. Get to that part, all right? That's where we'll be. If you can't find it, just pretend I won't know. All right? <laughs> good deal. All right, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, this is the second creative thing that he did on day six. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And that's where we're going to pause for just a moment to look at what it means, the phrase Imago Dei, in the image of God. Last week we had begun with starting off, uh, or rather ending last week, of trying to answer Sharon's question of what does it mean to be made in the image of God. And I was able to answer the first part, which is what it does not mean. First of all, made in the image of God does not mean that it means that we are not God, first of all. Right? Man is not God. We are made in his image and likeness is what he says. And we had already addressed the issue of how he says, why would he say the plural? And God said, let us us make man in our image after our likeness. It is a picture of the Trinity. It is showing the co-eternal, uh, co-equal, yet distinct uh, three persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead, who are uh, from everlasting to everlasting, who have literally spoken together to plan and decree these things and have made all these things. And now the crown jewel of creation of mankind and knows exactly how it's supposed to work out and turn out. And boom, that's what we got. Man, first of all, in the image of God, is not God, but that also means the other side, that man is not an animal. We are not an animal. We are not God, but we're not just an animal. So what are we? What is made in the image of God mean? Here, Charles Robert gives a succinct, a succinct um, statement about what it means as far as the definition. He says, the image of God in which man was created included the totality of his being as living, intelligent, determining, and moral. Now this certainly, as Ryrie gives it, is very, uh, it's a small definition of what it would mean to be made in the image. What it is, is it's less of saying, in the image of God means blankety, and it more means, in the image of God means this scope. It is a scope of our existence, the scope of who we are. Who we are and how we operate and function much mirrors or pictures who God is, to be made in his image and likeness. And now, image and likeness are not necessarily two different things, but rather uh, two sides of the, the one coin, if you will. They are both uh, comparative and together. Um, they are, we are made to be like God. Now, you see here how this foreshadows in just two chapters what happens. Adam falls, sin comes, death comes, and then after that, everyone's born sinful and going to die. And that's the opposite of how things are supposed to be. And so we're starting to go, and because of our sinful flesh and sinful nature that we have inherited and, and we get, that we are still made in God's image, but yet our image is going to see that we're, we're kind of marred. It's not what it's supposed to be. There was a, a book a long time ago that dealt with the issues pretty well as far as looking at Genesis and then Revelation. It kind of dealt with the idea of uh, paradise found and, or, then, or paradise lost and then paradise found or restored coming into to Revelation. And, and it's somewhat true. It really is. It's less like this and more like this. But we're coming back to something greater than just the Garden of Eden. We're coming back to a place where there will be no more curse, nor do I believe there will be a potential for a sin or a curse. And, and, and we'll see why on, an, on another, another night. All right? Or if you have that question, you can put it in a box. All right? <laughs> but tonight, what this means, looking here, 
our body is the instrument used to express our soul or our inner being, our inner man. Second, we, like God, are living, creative, able to choose, and all the way down the line. Right? As God has emotions and is described with these sort of anthropomorphic ideas of eyes, hands, mouth, heart, and all these things that we see, uh, how the earth is his footstool, and with his hands, all these things, we, we see that the way that God reveals himself to us is a way in which that you and I can understand. Why? Because we have eyes and ears and nose and mouth and feet and have these feelings and these emotions and the way these things are. So we can relate to the one who we are made in his image of. So we, like God, are living, right? We are creative. Uh, we desire to create, both procreate and as well as create and make things, right? You don't, you feel better. Let me ask you, which one do you feel better after? Now, this might be a trick question. I might be answering the wrong question, but... Do you feel better after a day where you stayed in your pajamas and you did nothing all day or if you got some work done? Do you sleep better if you got some work done or if you stayed in your pajamas all day? Some might be saying, if I stay in my pajamas all day, I feel pretty good going back to bed, right? I didn't even have to leave my bed to go to bed, right? I just stayed here all day. On the... But we think about this, right? It, when we are made to work, we're made to do, we're, we're made to create, we're made to do these things. Why? So that we can get to our day seven and rest. Now we'll see what that means next week. So come back, same back time, same back channel, and we'll get that one. But you know, the third thing that we see as well is that because we are made in the image and likeness of God, we have personality, we have morality, and we have spirituality. These things encompass who we are. Who you are is not what is on the outside, right? Who you are on the outside is a, oftentimes it's just really what I would say, it's just a a tool to express the inward. All right, this is why religion and all religions, besides biblical Christianity, teach that you have to fix or change the outside, or what often say are our Triple H here—the hands, head, and the heart. Okay, we see that the religion says that you've got to change with your hands, the outside world, change your shirt. Right? We often equate. Many people say, you know, for salvation, hey, you change that shirt into a collared shirt and tie, and then the Lord will get you right. No, the Lord gets you right, and then He'll clothe you, right? Uh, and he doesn't even have to clothe you in shirt and tie either, by the way. Right? That's okay. But the Lord will change us, and he doesn't do it from the outside, and he does it from the inside out. Why is that? Because what is going to live for eternity? What's on the outside or what's on the inside? Inside, exactly. How do we know that? Because today you probably found a new gray hair or a new wrinkle, right? Me too, <laughs> right? Y'all put it there, so hey. <laughs> Better claim it. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, right? My, someone did it. What my wife, though? was the dog, okay, right? When we think about this, every day we're getting progressively older, we're getting progressively weaker as time marches on. We are having our bodies slowly deteriorate, but yet, as the Bible tells us that our inward man is renewed day by day. How can those things be? Well, it's because our inward is going to live for eternity. It is our inward that will continue on. So the question is raised here, it says a little number four there for you. If God is spirit, then how are we made in his image? One commentator addresses and deals with this, and I think he does so well. He says, It will hardly be safe to say that the body of man is patterned after God, because God, being an incorporeal spirit, right? Remember, the Bible even says God is love, and it also says God is spirit, okay? And Jesus even says, No man has seen God and lived, right? No man has seen the Father, but if you've seen me, he's the Logos. The word Logos in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, it is the idea of the divine word, the divine revelation, the divine revealer, and the word became flesh, according to John 1.14. So to see Christ in the flesh is to see God 
And I certainly believe that even when we do see God face to face, it's going to be the face of Christ. He is the one who has revealed the Father to man. He is the mediator, the one who is able to be in between two worlds that we can't quite fully grasp. You and I understand the temporary and the physical, but it takes the spiritual-minded to understand the spiritual things. And we don't have a spiritual mind until we are born again. So now the commentator continues dealing with this, and he says, uh, yet the body of man must at least be regarded as the fittest receptacle for the man's spirit, and so must bear at least in an analogy that is so close that God and his angels choose to appear in human form when they appear to men. Did you ever think about that? When angels appear in the Bible, that they appear almost fleshly? And now there are times during like the incarnation, they're at the, you know, they're at the shepherds and the angels show up and they're, and the shepherds are like, oh, angels, and they're scared, and they're sore afraid, actually, right, and all that. But we think, though, backwards to Genesis. We're going to find later on as we go through this, Abraham gets word from a couple guys showing up, and they just look like guys while he's sitting under a tree, and they say, hey, you know, we're here, and we're going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so who, to, what two men could do such a thing like destroy hundreds of thousands of people in two cities with hellfire and brimstone? Not ordinary men, can they, right? It's certainly got to be angelic beings. As a matter of fact, the way that they come and they go and they disappear, and they're even described in Sodom and Gomorrah as that. So we find that what God does is he puts on flesh in order to die for flesh. That's Jesus Christ. And so then we find, and I want to get into this, that what is so important about made in the image of God is not your eye color, hair color, not what your body might look like as far as its shape or size or any of those things. What is so deeply made in the image of God is, is your person, your being. It is who you are, your essence. Now, we all have different personalities. So why is that if we're made in the different image of God? It's because we see the different ways in which God reveals and the way in which God works and how God uses different personalities and people and walks of life because it shows that there is a greater whole, that there is a church that folks, as we see in Revelation, all tribes, tongues, and people groups, that's who God died for and rose again to offer those people life from all over the place. So the Lord's certainly not looking for all of us to be the same image, meaning that we all look the same, talk the same, dress the same, act the same, or to all change our personalities to be the same thing. Rather, what he's looking to do is to take all of us who are image bearers and to bear his image properly. Now, how do we do that? Less about the outside first and more about the inside. We won't do righteous acts on the outside unless there's righteousness on the inside. But there will not be righteousness on the inside unless we have been born again. Because man produces no righteousness of his own. So we see that we, as image bearers, we have greater focus. We have a greater purpose in this life. And it's because we are image bearers that we know that we're not God, but it also shows that we have a higher purpose than the animals. Why? Because God's going to use this image bearer, Adam, to bring the animals to and say, hey, you name them. That's a cow, that's a this, that's that, that's a T-Rex, that's all that stuff, right? And that's what he's going to do. And we find that even more so, he's about to give him a blessing and dominion and all these things that man was created for this higher purpose, to fulfill and picture and image what God does in the heavens. If we take a step back and we read Genesis chapter 1, we had said this several weeks ago, and by several I mean a long time ago, <laughs> when dealing with a lot of this beginning of creation is, a lot of what takes place in chapter 1 pictures a lot of what the tabernacle or the temple looked like. And the reason why God gave the specific things for the tabernacle or the temple and for the creation is because what he's doing and what he has done with the earth and the, 
the sky and the seas and the stars and the land and the animals and all these things, is that he's filled up the heavenly temple, if you will. And what happens on the earthly temple is to mirror the heavenly. And so Adam, we're going to find, is going to be operating as sort of the the king of the jungle, if you will. He's going to be in charge and have dominion over this, what we would call theologically the theocratic kingdom of God. Theocratic is the idea of cratic, meaning the rule or the authority, and the theos, theos, meaning God, how God is ruling and reigning in this world. He's going to be using man to do so. That's why man has to be made in his image after his likeness and all these things. Now, I want to give you briefly tonight, because you could spend a whole lot of time in the, the facets of man. And to be honest, this list that I'm giving to you tonight is not exhaustive, okay? And if we gave you an exhaustive list, we would never have it because it's just not there. But the, the one commentator deals with this. He says, The biblical view of man shows him to us in an impressive diversity, but it never loses sight of the unity of the whole man, but rather brings it out and accentuates it. The first thing that I want to deal with, the facets of man, is first of all, the soul. Charles Ryrie gives a great idea and definition of what this might look like. He says, The New Testament reveals some similarities and differences in its use of the word soul, which is the word psyche in Greek. It denotes the whole individual person, according to Acts, but it can refer to the immaterial part of man only, according to Matthew chapter 10. It also designates people in the intermediate state between death and the resurrection of the body, according to Revelation 6.9. We have the immaterial, as what we would say, this is the immaterial dealing with feelings, emotions, and is an important focus of spiritual redemption and growth. When we talk about lost people, we would might say the phrase, a lost soul, wouldn't we? We wouldn't say a lost body. A lost body is someone who goes in the woods can't find their way out. A lost soul is someone who's born dead in sins and trespasses and needs to be found, needs their blinded eyes to be open, all right? That soul is the real one, right? The body's just the body. That soul's the real deal. Uh, the second thing we need to address is the spirit. We have here, every man has a spirit. It is the immaterial part of man. One spirit is the center of various traits, Emotions and activities. A variety of human responses, reactions, and emotions. Our spirit must be in tune to the Holy Spirit, as you and I know this. Now, you ever heard the phrase, they've got a good spirit about them, right? Or they're a very sweet-spirited person. That spirit, you don't see or go, you know, they don't have some sort of aura about them or a little halo or anything like that, right? Most of the time, we might even see the opposite sticking out. But the spirit, it's the idea of that immaterial of what drives those outward things the body is used to express the inward person that's why the lord talks about these things it says it's what what is inside that man it's going to come out if the person is wicked and vile you know what will come out wicked and vile things if the person does have a good or sweet spirit it's only because they have the holy spirit and that will and should and must come out we are literally to be saturated. It's like if you were to take a, a sponge and dip it into a bucket of water, and then you pull it out, and you don't wring it out, you just leave it. What's going to slowly work its way out? Water. Why? Because that's what you dipped it in. And so we find that the man, what he has inside of him will come out. And what we are born dipped in is we're born dipped in sins and trespasses, so we need to be re-dipped, if you will. And it's not through the baptistry, it's through the Holy Spirit. It is through being born again and 
of becoming a, a much greater image bearer than just with our, our body and trying to do good things. It becomes where we become a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. The third thing that we hear through the Bible about the facets of man is the heart. The heart is the seat of physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual life throughout the Scriptures. This is why we say you've got to get your heart right before God. Or this is why we would say, you might say, they're, they're good-hearted. Now, they're not good-hearted until their heart has been changed, until they've literally, what we would even call a, a heart transplant spiritually, going from a, a dead heart to a, a heart that has been given by Christ. It's His righteousness. It's His goodness. It's His everything. And that's what we deal with when we look at the cross. It's the great exchange when you are saved. It is that Jesus becomes all of your sin and gets all of your sin and all your filth. And what you get in return is not just to get rid of your sin and filth, but rather you get his righteousness. He gets your worst. You get his best. Does that, does that make sense? That's what that looks like. And so the heart uh, is very important because it's described that scripture is obviously it's physical, but it's also a dealing with emotions and, and thoughts and, and, and all these things. The man's heart, though, must be right before God. The other thing we find is the word conscience. The conscience, that every person has the conscience, has the ability and understanding of, to know who God is and what good and evil is. How do I know? Because as we've said before, you don't have to teach a child to not murder or to not lie. They know those things are actually wrong. That's why they try to hide those things if they do them. That's why from the very beginning, we never find a Sunday school lesson with Adam and Eve and the boys and then said, hey, today thou shalt not murder, boys. Repeat that after me. No, they already knew. And Cain says, eh, I think I'll do it anyways. Because he wanted to. He desired to. Because he had a heart that had inherited and been imputed sinfulness. And so we see that the conscience, though, according to Romans chapter 1, all the way through about halfway through chapter 2, verse 15 roughly, tells us that the conscience of man knows that there's a creator, but denies that there's a creator knows that he has going to answer to him, but doesn't want to answer to him. And even according to Romans 2, has the, the law of God, right and wrong, essentially is the idea, stamped, printed, embedded upon our heart. So it goes back to the other facet of man, that we know in our inward what is wrong on the outward, what we should not do. We know naturally on the inside what we should not be doing and what should not be done on the outside of our bodies or with our bodies. We know how to use our bodies naturally for good, we also know how to use our bodies naturally for evil. Right? It doesn't take laws to try to fix those things. What it takes is a, the fact that there's an inside person in there who's got to be right before God. And unless he is, he will do naturally what is wrong on the outside. We also have the other facet of man, the, the mind. This is the head and logical thinking that man is made to do. Those who are reprobate lose such cognitive ability. The reason why I would say today we're dealing with generations that literally have no more logical thought process I mean, it's gone. And it's scary, the fact that it's gone. You can laugh at it sometimes, but really, it's just sad. The ability to agree to disagree is gone. The ability to logically think through problems or to solve problems or to even come up with one's own opinion based upon truth and not feeling or emotions. The reason why we see that today is I believe firmly is it is a part of the reprobate mind and a reprobate world and a reprobate generation. A reprobate mind can't think logically anymore. That's why it looks at the door that says pull, and it says, I'm pushing as hard as I can, and I don't know why this thing went open. This is a microaggression, right? And that's what they would say. They want to argue that this is attacking me emotionally, and it's so bad, and it's oppressive, and 
blame the door for it. And it's like, well, it says open. All you have to do is just open it. But logically, it's not there. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're blinded. It's that they can't see. They can't think. Another facet of man is the flesh and the body. Of course, that we know and we see. That's the part of everybody that we do see. And by the way, you naturally judge someone based upon the outside, whether you say you do or not. (laughs) That's just what happens. It's in our natural man where we look at somebody, we naturally go, oh, well, this is what they must be like. That's how we develop prejudice, racist issues, sexist issues, and a multitude of other issues. Just by one quick glance on the outside, we've already judged the inside because our bodies are the instruments of the inside, but we've got to get to know the inside first. Right? Take some time for that. But it is temporary. Flesh, the body, it's temporary. It's generally against that which is good, especially for a lost soul. Then we have the will. The will is the personality and choice to act on what is right and wrong. There are some who we hear are strong-willed, some who don't have enough will, and we know that there are those somewhere in between, but what we've got to find and understand is that you have the will to do what you want. So as we talked about, why did God make and create? Because he willed it. He said, I will. So he, he did. So you and I have that same sort of idea in, our, in the image and likeness of God of having a will to make these decisions and to go, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Now, unlike God, he knows every single outcome by every single action long before he's even done the action. You and I, we think, I will do this. We can see about as far as right here, but we don't see how it's going to affect X, Y, and Z and all the other ripple effects here. That's why we've got to be very careful with things. Understand and make sure that our will his will, all right? Now, there's a million other facets of man that I could give to you. You could probably think of a million other right now, probably even more than me. As we move forward in this, it says another commentator writes about this. This consists rather in the fact that the man endowed with free, self-conscious personality possesses in his spiritual as well as corporeal nature a creaturely copy of the holiness and blessedness of the divine life. This concrete essence of the divine likeness was shattered by sin. And it is only through Christ, the brightness of the glory of God and the expression of his essence, that our nature is transformed into the image of God again. What this means is that to be made in the image of God physically, spiritually here as Adam is going through and Eve as well. And what you and I even have, what we have is a a marred version. I want to read for you a couple verses to help us with this. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 tells us this. And that ye put on the new man which after God created, excuse me, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Then over in Colossians chapter number 3, verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. What we find is that we are born in the image and likeness of God. Certainly Adam is here immediately in Genesis 1, but sin mars it. Sin brings about this dark stain. The way that you and I see and can express being made in the image of likeness of God, the greatest, is by being born again. Because when we are reformed, if you will, remade, and and each day of our Christian walk is to do what? To be more Christ-like. We might even hear it prayed, or might have even prayed ourselves to to be more, uh, to be formed in the image of your Son. Right? We, we are seeking to be molded and shaped to where we are more Christ-like. What that means is asking for the Lord to help us be better image bearers of Him. 
Help me to be a better reflection of who you are. Help me to better represent you, God. Our image that has been marred by sin, but one day those in Christ will be resurrected and glorified, never to be affected by the curse again. That's what we're longing and looking forward to. Right now, we try our best to be good image bearers of the Lord. Like, if we were to take the church van out here, right, and we were to go somewhere, one, you're representing yourself, right? You're bearing your name, your likeness, but now you're bearing the church's name and likeness, and but even more so, who are you bearing's image and likeness? The Lord's. So this is why it does matter what we do, what we think, how we act, what we say, where we go, the things that we bring in, all of it. Our whole life is bound up in Imago Dei. You were made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, act like it. Don't think so highly of yourself that you think you have the little spark of God or that you are God or even a small God. But don't think so little of yourself that you think you're just an animal and that God does not care for you because even he takes care of, of all the animals and takes care of the, the, the whole circle of life, if you will. But you're not just an animal that's just going to die one day and go back into the system here. Right? You are going to live forever. And you will one day meet that same God who you were to represent and made in his image of. Then we find that he says in verse 27, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Male and female, he created all the animals. Male and female, he created the humans. Notice this issue here. We're going to see that in just a sec. But what he first of all does, he's going to give them dominion in verse 26. This dominion means to rule. Man is created not only as the crown jewel of creation, but as the one who is to rule over creation as the sun rules by day and the moon by night. The issue, though, of our day is that in our sin, we are unfit to govern over these things and continuously abuse our authority or responsibility. The reason why we have messed up governments is because our governments are made up of people. And the reason why they're bad is because in their own hearts, they're bad people. They don't know the Lord, therefore they're not representing and governing as he has commanded. The role of government, the role of dominion, the role of authority, it's been given by God. God gives authority to man. Man does not get authority on his own. This is why the Bible still says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God. The Bible says that it's God who turns nations and raises them up and breaks them down. And this is why I, I try to my best to keep what I preach here to what's right here, and that's only the Bible in my notes here, and the notes are coming from the Bible, <laughs> is this, that when we look at politics and things, we cannot put our hope in something getting voted in that's going to turn the world upside down and better. The only thing that would turn the world upside down and for the better is the gospel. But the last time that the gospel transformed the world upside down, the people who preached the gospel had their heads chopped off. We don't want that. Right? In our flesh, we certainly don't. But the only way that the world gets turned upside down is if we go and we preach the gospel. It's the gospel that does it. It's not going to be a vote. It's not going to be a president. It's not going to be a, a governor. It's not going to be any of those things. Vote. Absolutely vote. Vote according to the word. But at the end of the day, no, I cast my vote. But for every vote I cast, I should cast out even more gospel tracts and prayers about what, who God is and, and how man must be born again. This also reminds us, too, though, that we are to have dominion over this earth. We do not answer to Mother Earth, because there is no Mother Earth. She's not there. She's not real. There is Father God, 
There's no mama earth. Right? There is none of that. Every time I see a mother earth sticker or a coexist sticker, I, oh, I just get the worst acid reflux every time. It just makes me sick. Because what they don't know is that there is no mother earth and they forget that they're not just an animal. but They're called to have dominion over the animals and the fish and the birds and the land and to take care of it. As a matter of fact, God's going to give him in chapter 2 and say, see that boy? Go take care of it. Go name them animals. Right? Milk them cows. Pick them apples. Except for that one. Right? <laughs> He's going to give him dominion over it. it. belongs to us. God made these things first. Why? Because what did he make last? Man. Because he made all these things for man's good. That's why he said after each of those days that he made something good for man. And he said, and it was good because it was good for man. And that man is going to be seen as very good because he's going to be taking care of those other things and to rule and dominion over them. We find the male and female issue. Tonight, that's a whole, that's a whole message. And I'm not going to get the whole message tonight, but this. God distinctly and plainly orders the roles of gender and sex of mankind. That means the home. And we're going to see that later as we get into Genesis 2 and 3. And we're going to spend some time on what it means to be married, how long that's intended for, what that looks like, and why it looks like that, and, and everything else. So it's going to be uncomfortable, so you're going to be all right, though. It's tough. But we've got to look and see that God is expressly clear what the home is to look like, what male and man is supposed to do, what woman is supposed to look like and do. And we don't like those things because we like what we like, that God gives us what it's supposed to be like. And the reason why I would say that our towns and churches and everything else in the shape it is in is because we have left and gone so far in our reprobate minds that we completely ignore not just what God says here that he made the male and female, but we ignore biology. It is God who makes the molecular DNA and says this is male and this is what it looks like down to its very core, every molecule and atom that makes up this man. This, same thing for woman. And he does not have anything in between. He does not have anything in creation that bounces back and forth. There is no man that can go and be a woman one day and a man the next. It does not work that way. As we're going to see later on, God makes Adam and he makes Eve and there's nothing else. And he makes them to be together. There is no confusion. Why? Because we do not have a God of confusion. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us he's not the author of confusion. He doesn't bring about confusion. Who brings about confusion? It's the devil that does that. It's the devil who says, you know, what do you feel like on the inside? What you are on the inside, you've got to be careful here. Your emotions will lead you astray. right? You can say that you're a, a pretty pink unicorn, but you're not. <laughs> right? You can say I'm this and identify as whatever you want. But at the end of the day, you can identify as whatever you want, but God's already identified you. And if you care to know what he identified you as, you don't have to look very far to figure it out. And I don't mean to be, be vulgar, but it's, it's truth. It's biology. It's simple. But the reason why we don't have that anymore is because we live in a reprobate world. Denies God's word, denies God's laws, of which he established and created for a reason. It is one commentator, David Guzik, he writes this. It is vain to wonder if men or women are superior to the other. A man is absolutely 
superior at being a man. A woman is absolutely superior at being a woman. But when a man tries to be a woman or a woman tries to be a man, you have something inferior. Nobody can be a mama quite like a mama. Nobody can be a dad except for a dad. How about we, we could end all these fights and all these different little feuds and things because everyone wants to say, well, well, is man better? Is woman better? Is all this better? You know what? We both are filthy, rotten, dirty, no good scoundrels who sin against the holy God, and none of us are good for anything. Neither one. It's God who is good. It's God who is holy. It's God who is righteous. But it's God who made each one of those sexes and genders for a reason to fulfill their purposes. And as we're going to see all throughout the rest of the Bible as we study it, and that's the intention here, and, and as we look at our own lives, we see that what God made you to do as a woman, he made that I can't do certain things that a woman can do, and vice versa. And we don't have to have a, a whole sit-down class talking about all these things because you already know in your mind you're adult enough to figure that out. We see that God is very specific, God is very orderly, and we must not. And what we do, and the reason why the transgender issue is such a, a sinful issue today is because, not that it just goes against biology, but it further mars against being made in the image of God. If God made me a man, but I feel like a woman and want to dress up like a lady, what I do is say, God, what you've done is not good. It is not right. You made a mistake, God. Because I'm really this other thing that I can never be. That's what happens here. So what it does, it spits in the face of the creator. It goes against his creative order. And it says, I am my own God. Because to say that I'm this, but I'm going to be that, or I'm going to be one of these other 20, 30 different things, which, by the way, isn't it kind of funny how they've recorded numbers for diseases and illnesses, and it's only been male or female populations that have gotten it? What about the other mix and in-betweens of identities? How come they haven't gotten it? Because there's male and female, and that's it. That's all she wrote. The reason why it's so serious, and my heart breaks, I've grown less angry over them and more hurt. Because they don't know that God made them the way that they are for a reason, and ultimately to give him glory, and that they might know him and represent him. But instead they say, God, the way you designed me is not right. And they would even say, God, you didn't design me. This is all a mistake. I've got to change. And the moment that we say, I've got to change who I am, it's the moment we go, God didn't do it right. That's a dangerous game to play, but that's, where we're, that's the world that we're living in. Then we find the blessing that God gives to male and female, to man and, and woman, as we're going to see in, a, in Genesis 2. Which Genesis 2 is day 6, but gives us the details. All right? But verse 28 says, and God blessed them. Isn't that great? God blessed them. As God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The, word, the blessing of God is absolutely important here. Salhammer writes, the importance of the blessing in verse 28 should not be overlooked. Throughout the remainder of, the, of Genesis and the Pentateuch, the divine blessing remains a central theme. How do I know? Go home and read the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you'll find it. What we find here is 
in just a few short chapters, God is going to give a blessing again. He's going to give a covenant of rainbow, which means I'm not going to flood the earth again and destroy it all. And then he gives him a new creation, literally walk out of the ark and onto a picture, by the way, as we'll see later on, of a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth where they can repopulate and, and make it right. Of course, it did not take but just a few days or even a few moments for sin to come right back and to spread rampant and like wildfire. But go back a few more chapters where God says, Abraham, come follow me and I'm going to give you all these things. And Abraham says, okay. And he goes and walks by faith. And what we're going to see is that God gives him a covenant and makes and walks a covenant for him. Abraham doesn't even walk the thing. He puts him to sleep and says, I'm going to walk this thing. And it's going to be this big old picture right, of a greater thing, of a blessing that's going to be not just for Israel, but for the world through Israel, who is Jesus Christ. And so from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the blessing is given to man, and the blessing has come, the God-man, and that man can now come to God because of that mediator on that cross and what he has done for us. The blessing is given over and over, and to Israel, they, they have these blessings, and they have these things that happen over and over and over again. God continuously blesses his people. God blesses all of creation, but even more so and more specifically, those who belong to him by faith. All of those who trust in him are blessed beyond measure or understanding. Now let's answer the question that verse 28 gives. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Replenish in the English language. This is a question that was raised by me, by someone uh, to me a couple weeks ago. And I said, well, we're going to answer it. The word replenish in the English gives the implication that there was something there that needed fixing. But when God made this, what did he say? Each day. It was good. It's good. And we don't find anything happening before Genesis 1-1, do we, besides God being co-eternal and, and just there, planning this whole shebang out. We find nothing. So why is this English word an issue? Because there are those who promote that there was a created order beforehand and they messed up so bad that God destroyed all of them and started over with Adam and Eve. And let's, let's start the scene again. Or there's those who say to replenish that there was a man-like creature like the Neanderthal sort of thing that a scientist might take or, or a, or a uh, uh, evolutionist who believes in God would say, you know, maybe that happened and then, then you know, Maybe this way or that way. Or, no. What replenish means, we cannot base this word off of English. We have to understand the Bible was not written in English. And even more so, it was not written in 2021 type of English. Because the English language changes. It really changes daily. Right? If I were to say the word bad, it could mean a lot of things. Depending upon how I say it. If I were to say, hey, the way you acted in church tonight was bad you would know what that meant. But if I saw a cool car and said, oh, man, that thing is bad. Same word, different meaning. So we've got to look at the Hebrew. We've got to look at the Greek to understand what these words mean because that's where they were translated from. Now, here the word translated as replenish overwhelmingly simply, simply means to fill. The Hebrew word is not to fix what was there or to fix some sort of mess up or fudge or mistake. The idea, as Sorensen writes, is not of replenishing an earth which God earlier judged and now upon which has placed another race. He simply enjoins Adam and Eve to have children. Adam was further enjoined to subdue the earth. The word translated as subdue has a sense to dominate or to bring into subjection. 
Earth is not our mother, neither is it to be worshipped. It was created for man's benefit and, and conquest. In similar fashion, God has given the animal and plant kingdom for man's benefit. So we find that it was not something that was there before. The English word replenish, is, it's, a, it's a difficult one there. Right? If anything, it should be to fill back, to fill up. Right? It's not to fill back up something that was there and then got emptied and has got to get refilled. Right? This is not your glass sitting at a restaurant. Right? When your waitress comes by and says, hey, can I get your refill? Well, what is that? That's to replenish, isn't it? As what we use the word as. But the Hebrew word means just to fill it up. It's to fill it up. Because why? The whole thing, there was nothing there. God gave two people. And so what's he saying? Fill it up. And what we're going to find by the time we get to chapter 6, where God's about to destroy it by water because of their sin, is that it was full of millions of millions of people. I would say estimates, they would say near, near the billions, quickly, of population. Figure they're living longer, means they can procreate longer, everything else. So there's no reason to think that we're not billions by the time the flood comes. Now, then we find that God blesses man not only with a job to do, but everything needed for his survival and for his job. Sorensen writes, it is of interest that mankind's original diet was intended to be vegetarian. Likewise, the original animal kingdom was designed to be vegetarian. Evidently, after the fall, that all changed. Even the animal kingdom was altered because of man's sin. All of creation, because of sin, was immediately affected and marred by sin. That's why the earth has continuously gotten worse. That's why animals deteriorate and go extinct. They wouldn't have unless sin comes, which brings death. That says here, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of the, all the earth, and every tree in the which is a fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. It's for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the, the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so means everything. What everything ate. And we know that's at least day one. Some would say, well, when does the fall happen? How long are they in the garden for the fall? I don't know. <laughs> I tend to think it wasn't long. And the reason why is we see how quickly everything changed, how quickly everything rapidly deteriorated and everything else. And if man has the opportunity to do wrong, right, you're going to do it at some point in time. It doesn't take long at all. But we find then that God says in verse 31, and we'll be done. And God saw everything. The word see, it's, it's as if he's walking along the earth himself and is looking, going, observing the work. It's like after you do a building project, you go back in to do a walkthrough or inspection, that sort of thing, make sure it's all good to go. Right? When, we, when we got our house, we had, before we got to sign paperwork and all that stuff, we had to walk back through it again. And it was like, yep, that's the same thing. <laughs> you know, that's it. Uh, make sure it's all still here and all that stuff. And there's even stuff there I didn't even want, and it's still there, but we got it. And then, then you go sign paperwork. God is walking through, if you will, and he's looking at what he's done. And he says, it was very good. Before it was good. It was very good. It's come to a completion six days. How long is six days? Six days. Good job, y'all. The rest of y'all hesitated. Six days, all right? We got a point over here. Six days, that's how long six days is. We've talked about that. God said it was very good, and we know it's another day because it says in the evening and the morning were the sixth day. When commentator says, God is represented as pausing at every stage to look at his work. No wonder he contemplated it with complacency. Every object was in its right place, every vegetable process going on in its season. 
every animal in its structure and instinct suited to its mode of life and its uses in the economy of the world. He saw everything that he had made answering the plan which his eternal wisdom had conceived. And behold, it was very good. Very good. It is very good because man has been made to express the image of God. Which shows us ultimately and shares ultimately in the glory of God and His creation. Now as we bring this to a close tonight, the reason why we don't get into into day number 7 is day 7 is going to cover chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And day 7 is going to kind of be a sort of main point of the created week. And we're going to see why that matters for us today, what you and I would call Sabbath or the Lord's Day, and ultimately one day the eternal day. That every day so far in these six days that God made everything, He does so in such order, such detail, with such authority, with such purpose, and with such pictures that point to a higher purpose and to a higher glory of ultimately redeeming a people through His Son, Jesus Christ, who would redeem these sinful people in their sinful condition and change them that He would wear flesh that they are wearing and would go through heartaches and bear their sins and go through troubles and be despised and rejected of those same people that were supposed to be His. And, and they would reject Him and He would die for them and He would raise again to show us that we too one day will raise again. Ultimately, pointing to the end, the beginning of creation points to the end, the fact that there will be a new creation. Tonight, real reason why we see and spend so much time on understanding who is man. Because if man left to himself, he's going to ask just a couple of simple questions. If you didn't know the Lord tonight, you could go home, and look at the stars tonight out in the country and say, ah, oh, sure, I'm small first. <laughs> you'd look at the world and you look at the sky and the stars and everything and you'd say, who am I? Right? Why am I here? What is all this? What is the meaning of it all? And if you want to know the answer to those questions, read Genesis chapter 1. And you will see that your purpose is a higher purpose. And it is to bear the image of God and to represent Him in this world and to do right according to His will and according to His word so that in all things, whether visible or invisible, He might rule and get the glory. Because it is by His hands, by His will, by His decree, and by Him, through Him, for Him. This is all of God, by God, and for God. Therefore, that means tonight, as His image bears, we are to live our life reflecting who He is. Tonight, God is holy. Are we? God is love. Are we? God is just. Are we? Tonight, may we reflect on our reflection of Him. And next week, we're going to look what the rest of this looks like. It's getting deeper and deeper and gooder and gooder. But I appreciate you guys. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night, God. Thank you for each one that's here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your creation that we can see it. Lord, that we can know more. And there's so much depth here. There's so much more that we could even begin to, to look at. But God, you've given us a whole lifetime. Lord, even more so that the moment that we step into eternity, every question that we've ever had, it's not even going to matter if it gets answered because, Lord, you are the answer. Lord, to behold your face and to see you in all of your glory, shining brighter than anything we've ever seen in our life, is going to be worth it all. So, Lord, I pray that you would give each person this night 
uh, this night in this room, Lord, that you would give them the grace that's needed to make it through their work week, through their daily life. And Lord, that we would be reminded tonight that we are bearing your image, and that we are to represent you well. Help us to do that in our thought life, in our hearts, as well as what we do on the outside. But God, help us to make sure that we're not living fake lives on the outside just to try to convince our inside. But God, that our insides are right before you, our heart is right before you. Or that we, so we might know you, that we might look forward to that eternal day of being with you once more. God, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you for who you are and what you've done. Watch over us and God direct us in Jesus' name. Amen.